I'd like to present an idea. If you, despite your best efforts, despite your frequent willingness to dedicate yourself entirely to self-discipline, are nevertheless stuck, depleted, frustrated, and unsuccessful, and there's exactly one recklessly defiant way in which you should go about it. A comfort war. What I've just described are unique conditions. Your unique conditions. Because they are specific, I can make a few axiomatic assumptions and then extrapolate to their logical conclusion. So in the next hour, I'll build such a case, beginning with a familiar and expanding into the unforeseen, and this will be the gist of it. You've been consumed. Consumed by your own passion. You don't lack motivation. No, you have it in abundance. So much so that you've become overwhelmed by it and suppressed it with layers upon layers of comfort, allowing it inadvertently to swallow you whole. Your desire is so fervent, so overbearing, that by leaving such a beast unattended, it wrecks havoc, devouring every shred of stimuli it can get its hands on just to satiate its need. This creates a deep incongruence within you, and it's why you're frustrated. Because you are not you. Because you're not the way you should be. What you may feel is a total, unavailing, miserable need for cheap gratification is only a reaction, in fact, of a nullified, equally ravenous and fervent desire for real fulfillment. One that might put even the greats to shame. Think of Joe Lewis, Sonny Liston, or Aaron Pryor, for example, who reigned as tremendous world boxing champions, but later after retirement, turns to drugs and alcohol to fulfill their need. You've been consumed by your own passion. This being the case, you only have one logical alternative to your current circumstance. To become obsessed. To center your entire life around meaningful pursuit. Yet incidentally, seeing as you don't have any middle ground or a balanced option available to you, the challenges ahead are far different for you than for those combating hardship. You, my friend, are at war with comfort. And that is a fact far more insidious than you may imagine. Now, there's a lot to get into here. But seeing how this is the very first podcast, I'll briefly cover the basic premise of these installments. Most important is that in light of the outstanding amount of misinformation that's currently out there, you understand what makes this podcast different and worth your time. So know this. First, the most crucial need to know step-by-step information is available for you now in the Comfort War book which, is, which can be downloaded directly from comfortwar.com. The podcast, in essence, is only to sustain you in the efforts already detailed there. So check it out. Second, 
This podcast is about a few things, but primarily, it's about perspective and ideas. In each of these, I'll present a rational, well-researched idea, as I have and I will, along with a transcript and citations for you to scrutinize. I'll do so by keeping my incentives honest in the most anti-Machiavellian means possible, providing free access in return for support only if you found the information valuable thereafter, and all proceeds go to further this effort. These are the two rules of this podcast, allowing it to survive and thrive only through the use of reason and by providing value. You may find that in your life, perspective, the way in which you see, is currently inseparable from your experiences. And with these ideas, that is what I intend to disrupt. The very way in which you see. By allowing you to regularly introduce yourself to a mindset so far outside your own, this external intervention, should you seek it, enables even your self-perception to undergo drastic change. So, back to business. Let's get right into it, shall we? And where better than by describing the enemy? In today's self-help, we try and focus our efforts on how to get rich, healthy, win friends, influence people, etc. But these are all just symptoms. They don't address the problem at its core. It's akin to trying to fix a broken engine by repairing the pistons and cylinders, but not once changing your oil. Of course, when you don't know your oil needs changing every time your engine breaks, it seems like an engine problem, not an oil one. And similarly, our own self-help problem has a yet unattended and illusory root cause. See, back in 1973, Nobel laureate Nicholas Tinbergen coined the term supernormal stimuli to describe an artificially exaggerated version of a naturally occurring stimulus. As it seems outside of nature's de facto threshold for stimuli, there's no such thing as a sweet spot. A brain reacting to certain environmental triggers does so uninhibitedly. More stimuli means more reaction. So when the male giant jewel beetle responds to the exaggerated occurrence of his accustomed mating cues, present in the size, color, curvature, and shiny jewelly appearance of brown beer bottles, he ignores his female counterpart and tries vehemently to get busy with these brown stubbies. Male stickleback fish get aggressive in face of wooden replicas with underbellies painted red. Songbird parents ignore their offspring for better decorated fakes. Moths kamikaze into burning flames thinking they're navigating by moonlight, and so on. The list of life affected by supernormal stimuli is without end, including us in it. Your brain evolved for an environment of 40,000 BC, responding to what it thinks are naturally occurring stimuli is similarly hijacked. Foods, saturated in fats, sugars, and salts, an endless stream of sexual encounters at a click, instant and cheap affirmation on social media, Adventures, risk-taking, and achievement in video games. Unlimited novelty and content on aggregator websites. Fast-paced, high-pitched, pure-tone musical rhythms. 
medicated fix-ups that can help you think, sleep, hype up, calm down, grow muscle, lose weight, kill pain, get hard, or get high. The feedback caused by supernormal stimuli creates positive emotion in response to behavior that is, in fact, detrimental. Same as if you snorted cocaine, causing your mind to reaffirm your incredible success. It will think a $1 cheeseburger is healthy and nutritious, or that consuming pornography increases your chances of reproduction. Unbeknownst to your brain, we've experienced in the past few decades a hyperleap in the conditions of our surrounding environment, and it hasn't caught up, nor will it. Moreover, it is definitively unprepared to deal with the total and unrestrained immersion of supernormal stimuli in our lives as we experience during our formative years. This is because our brain arranges itself and its connections most, it is most plastic during our early years and into adolescence. If developed under conditions of supernormal stimuli, it automates its processes under conditions of faulty reward. So just imagine the latest generations of mankind unprecedentedly born into this. How could we think for a second that this would not have considerable consequences? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. More on that later. Many cognitive neuroscientists argue that only 5% of our cognitive activities, decisions, emotions, actions, behaviors, etc., are conscious, whereas the remainder is generated in a non-conscious manner. In such a fashion, we are overwhelmingly managed by our subconscious. Makes sense, doesn't it? Imagine having to actively instruct your heart to pump or your lungs to draw breath. That'd be absurd. Instead, this mechanism allows us to essentially program the way in which we operate on a day-to-day -day basis based on what we've done and experienced in the past, resulting in these repetitious activities becoming automated. Most notably, this automating isn't just limited to our physiology. It also includes the ways in which our thoughts function as we engage in routines which we've been accustomed to, our behavioral habits. In other words, arguably 95% of our programming, thinking, and intuition power forward on a non-stop habitual course whilst our meager conscious minds stand alone to oppose them. For a heroically minuscule portion of your experience, you'll perhaps be able to make some real decisions and resolve to change these poor habits with sheer willpower, but during the rest, not a chance. You've tried that, haven't you? The nature of this struggle is that it is nearly impossible to adapt at once the total composure necessary to face a hardwired reoccurring inclination toward comfort seeking. As you resolve to change, your intent is regularly superseded by neurological underpinnings seeking to maintain the status quo. But as I've said, we don't focus on that. We focus on the symptoms instead, desperately failing at our attempts to correct them, too often inclined to underestimate the effort before us. To succeed, the struggle must be framed differently. See, the definitive, most pathological aspect of this state is the way in which 
despite your great need, a pervasive incomprehension will deny you the ability to just look it up. Call it brain fog or clouding of consciousness, moha, call it anything you like. This cognitive impairment has always been there and was therefore, by definition, nearly impossible to address. This, in and of itself, is the crux of a comfort war, the lack of clarity. I'd argue that clarity is the opposite of comfort, the perfect weapon in your arsenal. Relentless pursuit of clarity is the relentless pursuit of a stable foundation upon which you can build your discipline. Without it, your efforts are a house of cards, your motivation of fleeting interest, and all there to support a whim that has yet been dissuaded from taking a tumble. This simple piece, pursuing clarity, is nearly always overlooked in conventional stories of success, as the concept of clear thinking isn't easily recalled of a struggle by those who've already attained it. Our role models will remember the hardship, moments of despair, the just-do-it mentality, but not the seemingly trivial fact that they were able to focus in and see things for what they really were. Knowing this, your challenge is to regain composure, to get the information that is relevant to your reaching a stable starting point. And as with any worthwhile endeavor, it will not be effortless. Should you attain it, you'll suddenly find that all the advice you've heard thus far is sharply applicable. Your efforts then can be justly fought for once more, supported by a vivid coherence in the simple matter that is rising up to live life in all the glory and beauty it has to offer. Such clarity is the rarest currency in our day and age. For sight cannot be easily attained by seeking. Academically, this struggle is viewed under the following terms. The pursuit of comfort is often an attempt to use the more common method of thought suppression to completely drown out negative emotional impulses instead of using the more effective method of cognitive reappraisal to change the way in which we address a potentially emotion uh, eliciting event. I control my emotions by not thinking of them versus I control my emotions by changing the way I think about the situation I'm in. Instead of overcoming our fears, anxieties, urges, stressors, even boredom, instead of molding them, harnessing them, we push them out of our minds and encourage them to lie dormant. And not only has the repeated use of suppression over reappraisal been often associated with a higher frequency of such emotions and obsessive compulsive disorder, it has been further shown that such maladaptive attempts at inhibiting negative emotional impulses are a process that eventually becomes unconscious and automated over time. In other words, in an attempt to feel better, you'll feel worse more often with potential for very hazardous consequences that will only become harder to avoid with time. The solution to all of this is finding a way to extract yourself 
on a daily basis out of the mindless haze that permeates below your level of awareness. To reset daily. Resolve to fight daily. As it stands, subconscious comfort-seeking is certain to engulf your thinking at one point or another each and every day. The difference this time, however, will be that through understanding the mechanism that causes it, you'll be able to regularly obstruct this cycle. By employing a reset, your clarity can and will inch forward, making real progress and incrementally stacking the odds in your favor, eventually completely overtaking comfortable mindlessness. I call these manual resets, and they are the cornerstone method of the comfort war. In the pursuit of clarity, you confront your frustrations. You leverage your desperation. Set a time or times each day that must qualify under the following three criteria. Conducted in private, involves difficulty, and sensory input is minimized throughout. How you do this is at your own discretion. And again, you'll find details in the book. But there is one more, single and important caveat. The MR must become your absolute determiner of daily success and failure. You want the secret to fundamental change? Don't allow yourself to forget that you want it. In the dire depths of subconscious mindlessness, shackle yourself to a conceptus. Prioritizing the pursuit of clarity is simply a form of pursuing mental health, an effort to get your head unfucked, if you will. And getting your head unfucked isn't simply a non-radical, consistent process. Bended metal is not straightened by retaining it in normal position. It must be leveraged in opposite direction until it eventually corrects the crook and returns to an unbent form. That is the comfort war effort, and it relies on a simple and consistent reminder. This reminder, every day, determines your success or failure. And if for that reason alone, it is a measure that is exclusive to the desperate. In the words of Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher, the human being who does not wish to belong to the mass must merely cease being comfortable with himself. Let him follow his conscience, which shouts at him, be yourself. What you are presently doing opining and desiring, that is not really you. Remember, you don't lack motivation. It is burning and smoldering within you, but you've trapped it, suppressed it with layers upon layers of comfort that smother it all before an ever-reoccurring lapse of anxiety and discontent. Leave it ungratified by cheap stimuli. Allow it to swelter and boil. Discover your frustrations. Discover yourself. Discover your conscious roaring and clamoring at you. Use it to your advantage. Focus only on the antithesis of comfort's suppressive hindrance. Progressively gaining clarity. No longer needing to attain spirit. 
only unleash it. That's the first lesson. But we're not quite done. As I mentioned I would in the beginning, let's take this idea to its logical conclusion. As we introduced supernormal stimuli into our culture, as we've grown dependent on it, it seems to me that as a species, we've undergone a fundamental change. It seems to me that despite it still being widely unknown, if every generation could be defined by a single challenge, this is ours. There's no arguing that supernormal stimuli's presence is pervasive in our culture. We get our babies hooked on iPads and never do they outgrow it. But it's more than that. Cheap and widespread as, as it is, our youth is saturated and most influenced by a supernormal environment during the years of their lives in which they are least self-defined, most prone to inhibition, and completely lacking autonomy. During the time in which their brain forms the vast majority of its cognitive connections, as it is most corrupted by these prefabricated influences, they lack choice. And somehow, it always comes down to choice. This incremental impairment, not only of the quality of our thinking, but of our very tendencies, our intuitions, our perspective, coincides interestingly with another recent trend in society. You may have noticed. Today, it seems that whenever society is inflicted by some issue whereupon knowledge on the topic is easily attainable and freely available, that doesn't stop a considerable number of people from responding irrationally, irresponsibly, and in an uneducated manner. Somehow, individual action always comes down to choice. Without a doubt, the astounding availability of information in our day and age has had a tremendous and overwhelmingly positive impact on our society. Transparency and access to information are cornerstones in any free society. Yet still, somehow, whenever it is time to act, it always comes down to choice. You can bombard individuals with data-packed PSAs, get millions of social media likes and signatures on your petitions, raising awareness and educating the public, sort of speak. And yet many will still elect to behave foolishly. It always comes down to choice. Even in trivial matters, even when we can expect the vast majority of the crowd to act well, there are always some who do not willfully choose and do not act even in their own self-interest. So a fortiori, up against supernormal stimuli and its lack of congruence and its effects so deceptive in nature, so thoughtlessly appealing, do we expect such a challenge to be overcome by any but for a select few able to undo its detrimental inclinations with choice? Though all are capable of overcoming it, certainly, it is an effort too counterintuitive, as one must forgo all they've relied on in the past desperately, pursuing clarity with all their might. It is going to come down to this choice. And yet, we're not a culture that forms itself by the guidance of a rational minority. No, our democracies are differently engineered where the mass is most often steered towards simple, 
unvirtuous frivolities. It is easy to see the overwhelming tendency in modern-day public agenda to neglect the imperative of personal responsibility, accounting instead for gross negligence, protecting the majority from itself. To get to my point, I don't intend here to go much further in depth into the flaws of democracy or the folly of crowds. I will assume that we all know well how irrational the mob can become and how easily swayed. But I do wish to highlight what is perhaps a more subtle feature. One is especially consequential as society's challenges shift from those of hardship to those of comfort. In democracy, standing apart from the crowd, one still bears its burdens. Within the mob's madness, one is forcibly swept up by their whims, and to this, there is only one exception, to take advantage of it. In a standalone environment, you can choose if you're morally inclined to add value to society, to act well, and even to prosper in return. Yet so long as the fruits of your labor are inseparable from the careless pickings of others, so long as any cause you may initiate will result in an effect gravely influenced by the masses' zealous willingness to succumb to irrationality. You're only able by playing on that irrationality. Dog eats dog. Natural rights are just good PR. That's the mentality you can expect at the very top. One does not need to assess it long before determining that in the constant one does not need to assess it long before determining that in its constant pursuit of frivolous distraction, in its weighing of trivialities, in its inclination towards inadequacy and self-detriment, the crowd in general demands its own undoing. Our heroes, able to overcome themselves through individual choice and overcome their comfortable inclinations with reason and discipline, eventually turn to villains in the face of a crowd unwilling to do so themselves. Make no mistake, this is not a bug. It's a feature. And it matters now more than ever before. It matters most when only willful choice paves the road to good consequences and good outcomes. Yet what is so wrong with this flaw, you might ask? So what? Democracies are unequal, politicians cater to ignorance, so what? We make some progress, do we not? And does this relate at all to the comfort war? We experience hardships and overcome them, learn from the mistakes of history, albeit slowly, and eventually rise to the challenge? And some will have you know, stay moral. Even if the crowd will go so far as to turn on them, they will work to help it prosper. Perhaps. Let's take a look at the big picture and examine this. Let's remember it's even true that for eons, as a species, we've always had a remedy for a circumstance such as this one. Natural selection rewarded positive qualities and reprimanded negative ones. But of course, in our modern day world, random genetic mutations hardly play a role. Even the greatest supergene, uh, resistance to Ebola perchance, is not nearly as likely to contribute to your survival as good healthcare will, or contribute to the number of offspring that inherit your traits as a lack of access to birth control or a poor socioeconomic background undoubtedly will. No, we've transitioned forward since then. 
incrementally shaping societies that propel us onward through competition, cooperation, pursuit of ease and prosperity in the face of tremendous hardship. We did so, of course, still supported by our animalistic urges, indeed honed by hereditary selection, to avoid pain, pursue pleasure, and conserve energy. The cognitive revolution of sapiens 70,000 years ago had precisely this sort of impact, mind and beast working together, leveraging cultural traditions and myths, concepts of sacrifice and morality, fictitious intangible ideas such as monetary value, statehood, and so on. In the still existent crucible of unavoidable hardship, these two pillars of humanity worked in unison, complementing each other and resulting in great progress. But ask yourself, what occurs when the interaction of these two becomes incongruent? What of when the once pervasive, uncontrollable and terrible forces of nature, such as war, famine and plague, come very much under our control? What will become of a society in which supernormal stimuli, that which drives the human animal towards detriment and eclipses his cognitive abilities, is cheaply available and on a mass scale? In 2010, roughly 3 million people died from obesity and related diseases, while only 1 million died that year from starvation and malnutrition. More people die today from old age than from infectious diseases, and you are more likely to commit suicide than to die as a victim of war, crime, or terror combined. And this is all tremendous, don't get me wrong, but that does not in any way change the prudence demanded by the question. What of when hardship, the historical instigator of our resilient potential to rise and overcome, is negated in its effect. In our day and age, do we reward good behavior and correct it when flawed? In a time where we are so confidently willing to assume humanity as a genus destined for exponential growth and will forever continue to advance forward without a struggle, do we not recognize that it is no longer supported by the primary selecting factors that have so contributed to it thus far? It is, in fact, impaired by them. This time it's different. This time, there's no reason to assume that the vast majority of humankind will eventually learn to overcome this challenge. We're not dealing with hardship. We're not dealing with matters of difficulty, folks. There's no room for oppression and revolt. There's no room for the animalistic mind to learn from its pains and endeavor toward a better future. This time, individuality and individuals are critical. Willful and rational choice are critical. Actions as they relate to their own consequences are critical. That is what we find at the epicenter of this defining effort. It is no longer the case that good behavior is relatively the same behavior to which our monkey brains are inclined. In fact, brains sensitive to stimuli, a once tremendously positive evolutionary trait, have long been implicated in causing addiction and many forms of psychopathology. It is no longer the case that we can reliably expect the crowd to do and be on the right side of choice in the face of such a conflict, demanding and calling for reason, responsibility, and clarity of mind. 
in this endeavor so fundamentally based on choice and individual pursuit, on the resolve to meet action with consequence, we can only reasonably expect such a design to grandiosely fail. We must ask ourselves, so long as we are morally inclined, can we transform society to a form of voluntary participation? Can we restructure it to an extent where all will bear the consequences only of their own actions? As I understand it, this is the only exception to this line of thought, available only to those who truly wish to seek strength for the greater good, to add value. You can only say, within a system engineered to sustain and build upon these results, that morality must be pursued towards a fundamentally different design. What we are presented with, therefore, I believe to be the greatest, most defining challenge our generation will ever face. The onus to allow individuals to separate themselves from the public, to bear the effects of their own causes, rewarding good behavior and reprimanding it when faulty. A cultural selection. No matter the circumstance, there will always be those who choose to make bad choices. And for the first time, it will be the vast majority. Even now, as individuals, able and willing, are all the fewer and all the more crucial to this effort, our social structures incline them to become our enemies, promoting the conformity disease. Allowing people to participate amongst themselves voluntarily, not forced into the decisions of the crowd, allowing them to carry their consequences of their own actions is the obvious answer. Within the context of voluntary association, one does not even need to define what is inherently good or inherently bad in terms of behavior, only to participate with others in a way in which they all find agreeable and judge the results for his or herself. It will not be long before cause, linked to its effect, becomes apparent. You can see, therefore, the grand role of the comfort warrior in his or her simple and resolute choice to pursue clarity. First, he or she overcomes themselves, eventually associating with others, overcoming life itself. Consciousness is the greatest, most definitively impactful achievement in the history of our species. And in our time, we carry the responsibility to let it flourish. Now, some of you may find this challenge, your challenge, disheartening. You may even consider the concoction of your current circumstances a tragedy. And perhaps it is. As it so happens, this is for you to conquer. But if you'll have me, I'd like to offer some words of encouragement. We forgot, it seems to me, that to struggle is a fundamental condition of existence. We forgot how integral it is to life and progress. We've always had hardship in abundance, pain in abundance, never before the need to pursue it. The 1988 social psychology paper by Shelley E. Taylor and Jonathan D. Brown on positive illusions that argues, quote, considerable research evidence suggests that overly positive self-evaluations 
exaggerated perceptions of control and mastery, and unrealistic optimism are characteristics of normal human thought, is perhaps the most cited paper in the very field of social psychology, nearly 8,000 times. Such a narrative sits well with our current sentiments. It's why people flock in droves to buy copies of The Secret, or why strategies such as fake it till you make it are glorified so often. Now, I'm no expert, but my job here is simple, proposing an idea. And in such a fashion, I too reserve the right to scrutinize intellectual irregularities and popular falsehoods. I ask, what value is there in saying the world is so fearful and depressing that you best not look at it rationally and objectively? And to what degree should you lie to yourself? Just enough, but not more? And for what purpose? Toward what end could you possibly justify weaving these delusions? Positive emotion? What value is in that in and of itself? Do the people that you look up to, the people you consider mentally healthy, delude themselves regularly? It is my opinion that it's wonderful that this struggle exists, that this gives life meaning. I think we've unreasonably begun to expect struggle not to exist anymore, to assume our own progress. Can we not find in struggle the very essence of life? Even in comedy, do we not rejoice when being presented with the unexpected and overcoming it? Do we not find humor in the silly problems of others that lack grave consequence or poking fun at the most basic flaws of our tendencies, even going as far as to make jokes of horrific events? So I'll close with words wiser than my own, of Kierkegaard, a 19th century existential philosopher who brilliantly argues this point. There remains only one possible danger, namely that the ease becomes so great that it becomes altogether too great. Then there is only one want left, though it is not yet a felt want when people will want hardship. Thank you for listening.